Football Social Daily, your daily Premier League podcast. Welcome to Football Social Daily, your daily Premier League podcast from the Sports Social team. Times are tough for Tommy Tuchel, aren't they? As his Chelsea side were beaten by Dinamo Zagreb of Croatia last night in their opening Champions League group stage game. When asked what the problem was, his response, everything is missing. When was the last time we saw Tuchel with a smile on his face? And just how unhealthy are these problems for Chelsea? We'll discuss that on today's show. As well as Man City making light work of Sevilla with Erling Haaland yet again amongst the goals. And there was a cracking atmosphere in Zagreb last night for that Chelsea game. And you can expect similar in Naples tonight as it's Napoli who face Liverpool this evening when the Reds kick off their Champions League campaign. They've had a slow start to the Premier League season themselves, but can they use the Champions League to get back on track away in Italy tonight? And with Premier League teams having reached four of the last five Champions League finals, there's no doubt that the English top flight is one of the highest quality divisions in the world. But why hasn't that resulted in England winning an international tournament yet? Real Madrid midfielder Tony Kroos wants to know the answer to that question. And so too do some of you guys in today's AQA. All questions answered coming up later on in the show. My name's Niall. Thanks for joining us on Football Social Daily. We are proudly part of the Sports Social Podcast Network, which has now reached an incredible 10 million downloads across all of our podcasts for 2022. So thanks to all of the podcasters and more importantly, all of you for listening this year so far. Joining me on today's show, the deadly duo, Marley Anderson and Joel Tudor. Good morning, fellas. Morning, guys. How are you doing? Doing well. You're striking up a better partnership than... The likes of Kane and Son and Amiobi and Shearer, I think Joel was referring to you as. No, no, Lauer and Robert. I thought we might have to upgrade it now because it's been a while. I feel like we've upped our game after so many combinations in the last two weeks. So if anyone's got any suggestions I mean, for I, a dynamic I quite like Hasselbank and Johnson back in the day. I thought that was a little underrated strike partnership mm. in the Premier League. Um, I'm not sure who else I can think of. Pavlachenko and Robbie Keane. <laughs> <laughs> There's levels to this. That, for instance, you know, with the Amiobi and Shearer thing, Shearer was, although Amiobi's a bit of a cult hero, Shearer was clearly the better player. So which one? Which one of you's which? That's I'm what I want to know. Let's be honest. No one else is being Shearer. <laughs> Let's be honest. <laughs> Let's get that right. Marley's got about 700 caps for the podcast. Yeah, though. Marley, Marley's more experienced. You're like the the Hatem Ben Arthur coming through, Joel, with all the with all the skills uh-huh. and the tricks. You'll kick um, off in a few months and start going and get paid somewhere else. <laughs> well, we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. The transfer window is officially closed, so there'll be none of that for at least a few months. Um, talking of Good Johnson and Hasselbank, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, their previous employers, Chelsea did not have the best night at the office yesterday. They were away in Croatia in the capital of Zagreb to take on Dinamo in their opening Champions League group stage game and they lost by a goal to nil. Chelsea had some chances, they hit the post, they just couldn't get to grips with the occasion and they looked a little bit flat and things are not going smoothly at all for Chelsea, Joel. Is Thomas Tuchel's job beginning to become a little bit dicey here? Is there question marks over the future of him in that position with things going the way they are or is it a little bit of an overreaction to say that it's quite hard to tell at the moment just because we've never seen Todd Bowley in this position where he's had to not if for me personally I wouldn't say his position's under threat at all but when it comes to potentially that time where things are getting really bad you know in November time late October time where 
They could be in a really difficult position, which is difficult to recover from. It's going to be interesting to see how Todd Bowley actually reacts to that, because as we know with Abramovich in his office, they were very known for how they'd react if a manager was starting to underperform, as we've seen, as history has shown, as they were, and it worked for them. I don't know what Todd Bowley's strategy is going to be of whether he sticks with his manager until you know there's absolutely no way back for the season or whether he is another person who sticks and twists. So it's going to be interesting on that front. But in terms of Tuchel himself, it just looks to me, and the way in which the summer's gone, it was an almost kind of Ed Woodward approach where it was very scattergun. There wasn't much strategy. They went for people who were just available, the next best available. And it it didn't feel like Tuchel had his own input on what was going on and who actually fit his team. And I think that was shown the previous summer as well when Lukaku came because it felt like Thomas Tuchel was just trying to fit him in in any position he could. And it it didn't seem like he was ready for a, a Tuchel team. And now we're seeing it again. For me, it just feels like there's just so many individual square square pegs in round holes that are just not fitting and they just they just for me they look so disjointed and that team that won the Champions League I felt like they were so much more fluid and had a little bit more just easier on the eye when you watch them this one just looks like you've put 11 players together and they just don't really have a passage of play and it was so clear yesterday I remember mentioning the podcast um, just yesterday how Dynamo Zagreb, they were undefeated in their league season and you knew it was going to be a difficult game for Chelsea coming into it because Chelsea are not in the greatest form at the moment and it showed so much because despite having so much of the possession, every time they lost the ball, Zagreb looked like they were going to cut them open in the counter-attack every single time and I just don't know what the issue is. It just looks like it's going to take time for them all to gel together and I think the biggest Mm. part I found was Thomas Tuchel after the game started doing the them and us approach which doesn't really go down well with players which was that I was not misinterpreting the opponent or overestimating or underestimating them maybe the players did but I didn't and when you start saying comments like this suddenly you start to build a rift sometimes it challenges players but sometimes it takes them the opposite direction so it's going to be interesting to see the reaction Chelsea have at the weekend, but he needs to make sure that he doesn't lose them because once you lose them, as as kind of what happened at Paris Saint-Germain, to be honest, um, there's only one person who takes the blame for that, and that's the coach, but not a chance would I get rid of Tuchel anytime soon. He's definitely the manager that can turn it around for them. You mentioned the sort of... Uh, the way he was speaking after the game and that's something I picked up on as well which even in the post-match interview you could still hear the the Dinamo Zagreb fans going absolutely crazy and we expected it to be a a real intense atmosphere very passionate those fans and that was on display but I don't think that is the reason why you know Chelsea were were undone at the end of the day they've got players that are more than capable of dealing with atmospheres and experiences like that Marley but like what Joel was saying some of the discourse after the game from Thomas Tuchel saying that um, you know everything is missing when asked by the reporter what, what is the missing link right now and he's just responded with everything and then when asked in the final question of the interview whether he's surprised um, about the way things have started this season he goes no because it's a reality 
you know, he says he's not worried. The question was, are you worried about what's happening? He's like, well, no, I can't be worried because it's a reality. So, you know, I asked at the top of the show, when was the last time we saw Thomas Tuchel with a smile on his face? I mean, it, it, it's it's not looking great for him at the moment. And let's not get ahead of ourselves because it is just the first game of the Champions League season. So there's, there's lots of time to go. But you can understand why some people are, are sort of raising their eyebrows at this. Yeah, you can. I think the one thing that's making me think about it is um the fact that Todd Bowley didn't appoint Thomas Tuchel he's got no he's got no real sort of um sort of pull for him if that makes sense like he didn't appoint him he didn't choose him from the field he didn't sack the last manager in favor of Tuchel he's came in and he's already there and obviously you look at him and go well we just won the Champions League and there's nothing wrong with the manager that's fine but when things start going wrong I think it's always going to be in the front, never mind the back of Todd Bowley's head, that he didn't, he wasn't his choice. And is there anyone out there? Um, because he's invested in the squad massively. Um, Cucurella, Fafana, you know, and, and others, Aubameyang and all them sort of, etc. And if the results don't start going their way, I don't think it takes that much for Todd Bowley to say, right, I've invested in the squad, I've done my yeah. bit. And he's not doing his bit, so it doesn't matter that he won the Champions League two years ago. It wasn't in Todd Bowley's reign, so he doesn't even have that sort of um, emotion to fall back on of like, oh, well, this guy won us the Champions League because it wasn't us when he won it For in terms of it wasn't Todd Bowley's Chelsea when they won it. He'll be hungry mm. to do it again under his tenureship. Um, is Tuchel the man to do it? Not with results like Zagreb. It was, it was toothless again. Um, it wasn't a surprise when Zagreb hit them on the counter-attack, even though it was quite early on in the game that, that they did it and they managed to hang on. You weren't really looking at Chelsea and saying they're definitely going to score, they're definitely going to come back into this. You just didn't have that. It didn't have that feel, the game, I don't think. So it's um, it's a tough one for Tuchel, but I, I think what doesn't help him is he's he's so stubborn. He's He's got that sort of hard exterior of like, well, you know, like like you said before, I I understood the this this um, pressure of of you know it's a difficult place to come and and you know they're going to be up for it and that type of thing. But maybe my players didn't like that. Just like you know, like you said before, it, it just drives that little splinter, that little extra splinter between the player and the and the squad. And then you know the 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 owners looking over it, going, well, yeah, you know, if if I can't sack them, but I can sack you, so. Well, well, Joel was saying, wasn't he, it. that Abramovich would have got rid of him by now. Do you subscribe to that? Do you think that Roman Abramovich would have no. said, thanks, Thomas, you've done your job, but it's it's game over? I don't think he does because... He, I don't think he would have because if he was still there, I, th- I think I think he'd be thinking about it. I think any any owner would be thinking about it, but I don't think he would have shot the... Uh, you know, fired the bullet just yet because he had that... Like, if, if Abramovich was still there, you've... Uh, you would still have the bank of, well, we won the Champions League two years ago. And you would have that reminder of how good a coach he is and, and that kind of thing. They won at the weekend as well. I know it was in extraordinarily controversial circumstances against West Ham with the VAR decision. Um, but they still won their game at the weekend and they've just lost the first Champions League group stage game. So I don't think we should overreact too much. You know, they're sixth in the table at the moment on 10 points. They have lost two games. 
Um, so, you know, that's that's not great, but they're above Liverpool at the moment, um, who, who don't look like they're going to sack Jurgen Klopp after a shaky start. So, I mean, I, I think that's important to, to bear in mind. But was it always going to be this for Chelsea, Marley? Was it always going to be tricky, particularly after the amount of players that have gone in and out and the amount of changes at board level? We've we mentioned it so many times on Football Social Daily since the Abramovich era came to an end at Chelsea. Was it Was it always going to be a difficult start to the season because of everything that's gone on? Well, yeah. I mean, it, it was never going to be straightforward, was it? You know, the 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 type of stuff that's happened to Chelsea this year doesn't happen too often in clubs' history. I mean, how many owners do the clubs have um, in certain in in the space of like a hundred years? It's not that many. So, you know, having that come through and um, and it's always going to leave some sort of hangover on the on the club whether it's off the tape off the pitch in in terms of transfers not going through the door or whether it's on the pitch in terms of transfers coming in late and, and not settling and trying to get used to a new system and a new manager and a new city and all the rest of it it's um it's always got the potential and it's always going to be like a big um limiting factor on how the uh how the sort of first third or first quarter of the season goes you know um, I think we're seeing that with Chelsea, to be honest. It's just whether whether everybody stays pulling in the same direction or whether everybody starts getting fractious with each other and, and then it becomes mm. a, a serious problem because, you know, I think Chelsea are, are on the on the verge of that at the minute. Are, like, are they going to fracture mm. or are they going to, you know, crack on and, and get out of this? It's, it's got to be uh, got to be sorted soon. Well, if this is correct, and I hope it is, last night, I think, was Thomas Tuchel's 100th game in charge of Chelsea. In the first 50, his side conceded 24 goals. In the latter 50, 53. And I remember when Tuchel first came into the Premier League, everyone was talking about how difficult Chelsea are to score past. And effectively, that was the platform that they built from to help them win the Champions League, albeit some dodgy um, managerial choices from Pep Guardiola not playing the defensive midfielder for the first time in... 50-something games or whatever it was. So, you know, they were obviously helped with that. But also, their defence was difficult to break through and maybe losing the likes of Rudiger and Christensen has been more impactful than, than people first realised at Chelsea, at least. Although you say that, but, they, you know, in the last 50 games, they have played a few of those. But maybe that's it. Maybe it's the defensive problems that, that Chelsea need to address. They lost 1-0 to Dinamo Zagreb last night in their opening Champions League group stage game. No such troubles for Manchester City, who are also uh, on their travel. They were away in Sevilla, but they won 4-0 routine for Manchester City. Joel, as you predicted it would be last night, no real surprises from what we saw. Yeah, it was a complete mismatch, as we said yesterday. When you just looked at Sevilla's starting eleven, it was just so poor in terms of quality that I was actually surprised that City didn't score more because you saw the likes of Isco playing as a false nine and Alex Tellez as a winger, Jesus Navas as a right-back. I mean, this isn't Champions League quality at all. It's just a complete mismatch. Did you say Jesus Navas? Yeah, a right-back. He's still playing, is he? (laughs) Yeah, he's been there for a while now since he left City. Um, But yeah, he played at right-back, and you had Rakitic, who isn't at the peak of his game anymore, as an attacking midfielder. It's just a game that City could exploit them in the proven to be the case with a 4-0 victory and it was just didn't really get out of second gear for the whole game City and obviously Erling Haaland like we mentioned yesterday has improved his ridiculous Champions League goal scoring record it's just I don't know what the ceiling is going to be for him but he's he's already 
five goals away from Rooney's record in his whole career. He's already overtaken a ridiculous amount of players who've already retired with a small amount, such as Robin Van Persie. But it only matters if he can get close to the to the title and it'll be interesting to see if he can prove decisive for City. But I think Sevilla were just such a poor opponent for them yesterday that it's hard to see just how far they'll go. But uh, judging from that performance, I think they'll be just fine in their group and I don't think Sevilla are going to get anywhere near out of their group as it comes to the later end of the group stages. But it was just such an easy performance. I don't think they would have expended too much energy going into the weekend. Um, they were able to you know, bring Haaland off kind of early and Kevin De Bruyne and just start planning ahead for the weekend. I think that's the best case scenario that Guardiola yeah. could have hoped for. Yeah, I mean, you look at the partnership between De Bruyne and Haaland and you just wonder how many goals that that will provide for Manchester City this season. You say they were easy on the eye. I agree, apart from the fact that their kit was an absolute shambles last night. I think the kit man's had a shocker. He's brought the home kit to an away game, forgetting that Sevilla also wear white shorts. And he's thought, crap, what am I going to do? I'll have to bring the spare kit out. <laughs> and he's given them the brown shorts with the blue kit. And I think although the home kit's got like some maroon sort of striping and piping on it, it didn't work. It looked shocking. Not that Haaland would care. A goal for City on his Champions League debut, a goal for City on his Premier League debut, he scored a goal on his Champions League debut for Salzburg and on his Champions League debut for Dortmund 25 goals in 20 games he's the fastest player to reach that milestone in the Champions League Cristiano Ronaldo is the all-time leading goal scorer in Champions League history after 20 games of Champions League football he had scored zero goals so that's a very interesting statistic but a long way to go for Erling Haaland no doubt he is an exceptional player I was going to ask about whether Manchester City are more suited to knockout football this season, but as it is just the first group stage game, we'll draw a line under these Champions League fixtures from last night for now. And we're going to focus on some more in a second because Napoli against Liverpool and Tottenham versus Marseille is on the agenda tonight. And we'll talk about those two matches next after this on Football Social Daily. Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Football Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk. Welcome back. This is Football Social Daily, your Premier League podcast from Sport Social. New episodes every single day of the season and more than one new episode a day. By the way, if you've noticed, then we've released a new episode for the season every day called Shots, a short form podcast wrapping up all the news from the afternoon that we might not have covered on this full edition of Football Social Daily. So if you hit subscribe, that way you won't miss it. And we'll keep you up to date with all of the latest news from the top flight this afternoon. No doubt, Napoli against Liverpool and Tottenham versus Marseille will be discussed throughout the course of the afternoon, purely because they're the two Premier League teams in Champions League action tonight. And we'll start in Naples, where Liverpool have a tricky trip. It is a cliche, Marley, but Naples is an unpleasant away experience. So it's not going to be easy for Liverpool tonight. Not that any game is easy in the Champions League, as Chelsea found out yesterday. And they also found out, the Blues, didn't they, that a, a, a sort of intimidating atmosphere can go a long way to pushing a side through. So Liverpool will be up against it tonight. Yeah, they will. Um, I think with, you know, the, the, there's clips that go viral every every few, um, like every year basically, of uh, the intimidating atmosphere of the uh, at Napoli Stadium with like the, the pitch announcer like screaming. I think the one that always, you know, always pops up where he's screaming like Higuain's name after he scored and they're all like bellowing it back and it's, 
it's a proper old school stadium as, as every stadium in Italy is to be fair they're all on the on the backside falling <laughs> apart and not filling it with any confidence but it's a proper old school stadium and, and the people of Naples is you know they they do have a, a certain sort of everybody hates us and we don't care attitude and that creates a really intimidating atmosphere they are they are a, a tough horrible place to go to be honest and if you're not on your game I think they can they can upset you they've got talent in that squad they've got some really really good players um, they've had a decent start in to life in Italy uh, in the Italian league uh, and Liverpool have, have been off it haven't they so far in the in the Premier League so I think it could be a tricky one to be fair I think with uh, a win like this for Liverpool if they can get a win would be huge for their season because it would just sort of uh, reinstill the confidence in in the side um, I think not that they're, they're sort of completely bereft of it at the minute but you know the the players they've got you know um have have not sort of hit it yet i don't think i'm thinking about Harvey Elliott and Fabio Carvalho lining up in midfield in in Naples i think it's a, it's such a tough ask for for young players as well as uh, specifically so we'll have to see what happens but i can see napoli getting something from this game definitely um but it's it's up to liverpool if they can if they can sneak a win I think it'd be huge for the next uh, the next sort of ten or so games because it'll really bring that confidence back to the uh, the squad. Yeah, it's not been the the greatest start to the Premier League season for Jurgen Klopp, and you know he'd be the first to admit that in amongst all of the excuses that we often hear from him. But is this a good chance for Liverpool to kind of refocus on something different? Joel because it is starting from zero isn't it it's a new campaign a new group stage not the easiest of tests to start off with but it gives you something else to think about away from the Premier League it is but it is a mountain of a task this one I don't think Klopp would have wanted to face Napoli away in his first Champions League fixture especially in their current form as well um, aside from Ajax and Rangers, I'm pretty sure he, w- he would have wanted one of those to start off the campaign and try and get the confidence going because Napoli at the moment, they're in some ridiculously good form, especially in Serie A where they've not even lost the game yet. They've only conceded four goals in four games um, and they're looking super good in their league at the moment. And we were just mentioning prior to the podcast that they've got a young breakout star which seems to be the case in every single Serie A season where this young sensation just ends up becoming a world star and then falls off the next year but if anyone watches tonight there's a young winger a Georgian winger called Kvaratschilia I don't know if there's any Georgian listeners but I might have I'm butchered so that I'm so glad name. that you said that and not Jim <laughs> Kvaratschilia I think that's how you pronounce it but they're calling him Kvaradonna purely because they think he could be the next big thing in Naples. Um, He's got four goals in five games in Serie A at the moment and he's looking ridiculously good. He's only 21 years old. So he's Mm -hmm. a player to watch out for at the moment. He's one of the main reasons why Naples and Napoli are second in the league at the moment. So it's going to be such a tough test for, for Klopp and his side because coming up against, like you've both mentioned, one, a really intimidating atmosphere and fans who are passionate like in no end I mean if you've ever been to Naples you'll see Maradona murals all around the city he's basically a god to them and when you know that that's when you know you're in a footballing city so to go to one of those cities where they live and breathe it and there is such good form as well is going to be such an interesting tie because 
Liverpool are going into this game not in the best form at the moment, obviously only winning two games in the Premier League and struggling in some games and not really looking like they were last season, especially with Mane leaving and not really updating their midfield. And then they come up against a Naples side who've just come off the back of a really big win against Lazio and you know, they've got Victor Ossiman up front and Zielinski and Hervin Lozano. They look like a really strong and very sure fit, I would say. They've got obviously Spalletti who's really making them perform at the moment and I think they'll be there or thereabouts in the Serie A title race. So it's going to be a really interesting matchup. Two teams who are either in amazing form or not in amazing form. But like you mentioned at the start, I think if Liverpool could win this one, it could be the kind of catalyst that they need to go forward in the Premier League because I think winning this will have such a massive mental boost compared to any other game because it'll require a lot of physical exhaustion I can imagine yeah you're right and I think you're right to pick out some of the dangerous sort of midfield and forward players that Napoli have that are probably underrated you know players like Elif Elmas and you mentioned Ozimen, but Herbing Lozano is, is a very good player as well and and you've already mentioned uh, Piotr Zielinski who caused some problems for uh, Leicester I think in the Europa League last season so they've got some they've got some decent players there's no doubt about it as well as Tangai and Dombello who's on loan at Napoli from Tottenham and Tottenham start their own Champions League campaign this evening at home back in the big time and they welcome the French club Marseille to North London to avoid putting pressure on themselves Marley considering it's been a while since they've been back in the Champions League a strong start would do a lot of good won't it to their group campaign yeah I think um I think they do, yeah. It's it's important to get off to a good start. I think the, the Spurs are in that sort of um, wide open group where I think everyone, every I think Spurs are clearly the favourites to go through. But you know, Marseille, Sporting, and Frankfurt are, have all got big performances in them. I think they could all be there or thereabouts. You could see a um, a final sort of group stage table where they're all separated by three or four points. I think it's one of those where if you don't you don't want to be sort of off to a poor start because it can easily get away from you, this this type of um, group. I think Marseille are probably the second toughest team in it and probably the favourites to go through with with Spurs. So that means we've basically, if it works out like that, we've got the two best teams playing against each other in the, uh, in the opening stages. So I think it's important for Spurs to keep Marseille at arm's length if they can um, and get a little lead over them you know, before the uh, before we get really going into um, game weeks two and three and, and four, um, so it's one of them where I think they've started well. They seem to be getting better. Spurs, I think they they started to really settle into the season now, and they're rotating a lot, um, and it seems to be working. I think uh, Conte made five changes at the weekend, and they still won pretty comfortably. So it's um, it's looking good for Spurs at the minute. But with Spurs, you're only ever one bad. One sort of 90 minutes away from a bad result, aren't you? So hopefully Conte can iron that out um, and, and get a win over Marseille tonight because they, uh, they need that confidence to, to make them believe that they can, they can crack on and do something really good this season. Yeah, do you think with Frankfurt and Sporting being the other teams that, that Spurs are the clear favourites here, Joel, and do you think that they can handle that tag of being clear favourites? Because although under Conte that whole idea of them being slightly fragile and you know spursy is the term that's always used isn't it um that seems to have dissipated a little bit since Conte's come in so do you think that they're going to be able to handle the tag of being group favorites here 
to be honest, I don't even think it's Tottenham that needs to prove something. It's Antonio Conte that needs to prove something in this competition. Because in the past, he's had such amazing teams that he's won titles with while he's been in the competition, such as you know his Juventus side that won three or four Scudettos in a row. His Chelsea side, which at the time had the most wins in a Premier League season ever. And he just didn't seem to get very far with any of them. I think that the highest he got was a quarter final, if I'm not mistaken. So in this competition now, he's been given a pretty generous group. I mean, Frankfurt, Sporting and Marseille, you would say that they're the overwhelming favourites in this one, especially since Sporting have been gutted out yet again. Marseille... I mean, they don't typically do very well in the Champions League group stages. And Frankfurt, they've had a lot of their main players taken off them since that Europa League uh, final victory. So you would say that the group stage is going to be a pretty coasting group stage for them. But it's when it gets to the knockouts is where we really want to see just how well Antonio Conte can set up his side because I've I've yet to see it in the competition. Well, do you know what, Joel? I think with Tottenham and even under Mourinho, they struggled in the group stages. I think they lost a couple of games they really shouldn't have lost in the Europa League and the Europa Conference League in recent seasons. I seem to remember them coming up against some strange teams from far off lands without sounding too disrespectful to the competition and coming unstuck. There were a couple of occasions where that happened. But you're right about Conte's Champions League record. I think five seasons he's managed to decide in the Champions League, three different clubs, Inter Milan, Juventus and Chelsea. In three of the five seasons, his team's been eliminated at the group stages. And at the other two, he reached a quarterfinal in 2012-13 with Juventus and then the last 16 with his Inter Milan side. But apart from that, he's oh, sorry, the last 16 was with Chelsea. But apart from that, you know, his record in the group stages is not great. You're right. So good chance for Tottenham and Conte tonight to show against Marseille exactly what they can do, even if it is just in the group stages. Both of those games, Napoli, Liverpool and Tottenham, Marseille are this evening in the Champions League. And no doubt on tomorrow's episode of Football Social Daily, we'll be casting an eye over those two results. But next up on the show, it's time to answer your questions. Every Wednesday, you send in your queries to us via social media and we will do our best to answer them. So AQA is on the way next we'll do it after this football social daily subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode football social daily find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk Welcome back to Football Social Daily. Final part of today's podcast is AQA, which if you've been listening to the show for a while, you will know stands for All Questions Answered. It's nothing to do with the exam board that does GCSE papers in the UK. You just need to clarify that once every season. Stop PTSD just hearing that. <laughs> Here are the questions from today, and it starts with this absolute belter from Liam on Instagram. Thanks for your question, Liam. Don't forget you can send your questions into us on socials. It's at uh, FSD pod on Twitter at Sports Social Official on Instagram as well. And Liam's question via Insta is love to hear your thoughts on this by Tony Crows because undoubtedly the Premier League is the highest quality league in the world. However, the England national team seemed to fall short. Here's a quote from Tony Crows on a podcast when he was talking about the Premier League. I have been hearing for two years that the Premier League is far ahead of everyone else, but they haven't even won an international title this year. The TV licenses have been noticeably higher for years, but that didn't lead to the English teams winning. I've got a few thoughts on this one. I'm sure you have too, Marley. I'll let you uh, tee off on this one first of all. Yeah, it's um, I don't, I don't really know 
what he's what he's getting at because I th- I feel like the um the Premier League has been renowned as as the best in the world um for more than two years <laughs> that's what I'm saying like more than two years so whether you agree with that or not is is one thing but I think the um it gets that reputation because the best players are there uh and well most of the best players are there and those aren't necessarily English so why does it why does it relate to to the national side do you know what I mean like yep. uh, most of most of uh, other countries um, squads are made up of players that play in different leagues and England haven't had that for, for a long long time it's only very very recently that players are starting to go out and play in different countries and actually realising that over the water is a whole a whole new land where they also play football like Jude Bellingham going to Dortmund Jaden Sancho going to Dortmund uh, Chris Smalling and Tammy Abraham going off to Italy um, Fikayo Tomori following them to go with um, to go with Fikayo to um to uh, to Milan, so it's it's one of them where I think I can't talk of the culture in other in other countries, but I remember growing up and we had that that golden generation of the early two thousands where you know the team on paper was just just ridiculous: Ferdinand, Terry, Neville, Cole, Scholes, Gerard Beckham, uh, and on that Molly we... as well. I mean, I've heard the likes of Rio Ferdinand and other players from that generation say that because of the competitiveness of the Premier League, Rio Ferdinand was with Manchester United wanting to win titles. Frank Lampard and John Terry with Chelsea yeah. trying to win titles. The Arsenal boys were their own little contingent, the Liverpool boys. And there was that conflict within the England squad purely because everyone at club level was competing with each other. And it was hard to put those differences aside when it came to the international camp. So, you know, we have had <laughs> times in the past where... You know, the Premier League has been an exceptional field of talent, of English talent. And I think we're in that position now again. But there's been other obstacles in the way. Yeah, but that was their issue, though, because don't forget the Spanish squad of 2010, half of them were from Barcelona and half of them were from Real Madrid. And they didn't all get on like a house on fire, but they absolutely killed everyone. So that was their problem, that England squad, because every other side or every other country sorry has had that issue of having their rivals with each other but like Marley said it probably is a cultural issue because the Spanish squad I know for a fact I know Gerard Piquet spoke about it quite a lot that you know the Barcelona and the Real Madrid camps didn't necessarily hold hands during training but they knew what they wanted to achieve and that's why they achieved yeah but also there was, there was enough of them to like it was literally like half and half wasn't it it was like you could go through Spain's sort of all conquering teams and I think the only one, if off the top of my head, I could be wrong about this, but the only one who would get in who wasn't um, a Barca or Real Madrid player was the left back. I think it was Captivilla. Uh, was it Captivilla who played for, for yeah. Villarreal? And he was just like, he must have just been the peacekeeper in the team. Like, I like everyone. What's everyone going on about? But with England, there was like, like Niall said, you know, there was Chelsea, Arsenal, Man United, and um, like then you get you know Spurs and uh, and other teams like that who, who had all like two or three players each and I think like you know we we look back at it and it's like Gerard and Carragher and then they're probably like oh like oh we're gonna go away with England and it's Terry and Lampard against them and it's it's almost like I've got to prove I'm better than you because you know that this that's what everyone talks about week on week on week and then you look at how Gerard and Lampard two of the best centre midfielders England have ever produced exactly yeah. couldn't work together I mean, in this, midfield that's and I, key I'm, for me 
That's because they're, they're, they're trying to outperform each other. And the media as well. And I don't want to blame the media because we are a part of it. But I do think this whole... And you hear it down the pub to this very day. Is it Gerard Scholes, or Lampard? Who was the best English midfielder? You know, we could probably do another 10 minutes on today's podcast just arguing that fact. You know, and, and yeah. if you've got that sort of debate happening, you know, around fan circles and, and, and whatnot, then... You know, there's there's problems there and, and not just kind of focusing on that generation, just in general, what Tony Kroos was saying, why haven't England won anything? Well, they reached the semi-finals of the World Cup, which is better than what Germany got in the last World Cup. They reached the finals of the Euros and they were knocked out by England in the last Euros. So what's he going on about? If he's talking about the last two years, or oh, England have never won a tournament. Germany have done absolutely nothing either. And, you know, that's not to denigrate their other achievements. They've won far more World Cups than England and they've been far more successful on in the international stage than I think England will be in the next 150 years. But in terms of the last two years, which is the time frame that he focuses upon, what's he going on about? Because... I think it goes back to what you said very first of all, Marley, which was the Premier League has got so much money that naturally it attracts the best players from all over the world to come and play. And therefore, it means that English players are kind of forced to, to try and play their their trade overseas on occasion. I think that can be beneficial. But I think there are a number of reasons why England haven't won a, a major trophy. And one of them also is that myself, and I don't know about you guys, I'm a club over country guy. And I don't know whether that really is something that exists as much overseas. I mean, I'm making assumptions here, but I've said it so many times before. I'd rather Portsmouth win a trophy. I'd rather Portsmouth won promotion this season than England won the World Cup in the winter. And people sometimes look at me like I'm an absolute madman for saying that. But I just would. It's just how I feel. When, when you look at this statement, first of all, he says that here in two years that Premier League is ahead of everyone else. That's a fact. Because when you look at the Champions League campaigns, there's been an English side in the Champions League final for four of the last five years. And there's been, well, Liverpool were the ones who won it. But there's been there or thereabouts, mainly English sides. And let's not forget, 10 years ago, that was just Spanish sides. So it does mm. show that there's been an improvement. And the biggest point, as Marley said, is that the Premier League being great doesn't equate to the national side being great as well. It's the fact that the Premier League attracts the greatest players in Europe to the league. So it doesn't really necessarily mean that the national team is going to automatically win everything just because of that. But the one side I do agree with him on is probably the bit that he's actually getting at, which is that this is your golden generation now, and yet you've still not won anything. Yet his German side did it in 2014. The Italian side did it in 2006. The Brazilian side did it in 2002. So... I can understand the point that, you know, there's so much money going into the Premier League. You're probably getting so much infrastructure payments to get all of the grassroots going. And it's showing because the English setup now, the under-17s, under-21s, the main team, as we've as you've mentioned now, you know, in the World Cup, in the Euros, we're getting far. But far isn't enough. You need to win it. But his statement is so confused and it doesn't really make a lot of sense. It's very, uh, it's very swervy and a little bit contradictive. But... I think the main aim is getting it is that you need to be winning something with this kind of tier that you're on at the moment with the national team. And I agree with that. This is a now or never kind of thing because this this is like the next golden generation, which I think is levels above a lot of other national teams. But the Premier League quality doesn't necessarily mean that your national team's going to go far because when you look at the best players in the Premier League, more often than not, if you count out the best five, I mean, Harry Kane's probably the top, one of the top three, but then you're going to say Kevin De Bruyne, Haaland, Bernardo Silva. You know, it's going to be a lot of the players who have come from other countries, so it doesn't really make sense to me. 
Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to unpick from that Tony Crow's comment on a podcast. I think sometimes when things are translated as well, they can be slightly lost in translation and that can muddy the waters a bit. It just sounds to me like someone who's a bit bitter that his favourite pair of boots have just split down the side and he can't get any new ones. That sounds like what's happened to me because <laughs> that is exactly what's happened to Tony Crow's. I think the is it the pair of Addy Pures he's been wearing yeah. since 2014 yeah. of the seams have finally broken on them. So anyway, nice one, Tony Cruz. Enjoy um, winning everything uh, with Real Madrid, the Champions League and stuff, but um, it's just, it's not the Premier League, is it, La Liga? It's just not the Premier League. Um, okay, moving on. Next question, and this one comes from Mitchell. Uh, he's a Spurs fan. Will Spurs continue to be a thorn in the Man City side this weekend at the Etihad? Come on, you Spurs. Of course, the first game of last season's Premier League saw Tottenham Hotspur beat Manchester City by a goal to nil. And Tottenham against City seems to have been one of those games where City always run into trouble against Spurs, Joel. It seems to be like a bogey team. You think back to a couple of years ago in the Champions League knockout stages where there were some crazy VAR decisions and Raheem Sterling thought he had won it right at the death and then it was taken away from him. That must have been three or four years ago now. But there have been some good clashes between these two sides. Mitchell seems to think that Spurs will continue their decent run against City. What do you think? Well, Owen, our Spurs fan in the office has not stopped going on at me all last week saying we have we have City's number they can't beat us every time we go to the Etihad it's always an easy easy win for us and actually you know what history actually proves him quite right to be honest I do remember one of the biggest standout games was the Champions League semi-finals or quarter uh, quarterfinals it was when um, Son scored those two goals in quick succession and they just could not handle Spurs' counter-attacks every single time they go forward it looked like they were going to score and I don't know what it is with Spurs' forward line I don't even think it's the forward line it's just Son and Kane combine so well and they work so well against City's weaknesses that it just seems to come off the seams every time they play them um, I don't know if it's a case of, for, for example, Harry Kane always seems to drop into a more creative role and Son seems to go a little bit further forward on the counter-attack and it always seems to be City's Achilles heel when they play them and it would be good for Spurs to see Son start firing again in this game because he does like a goal against City and he's not scored yet in the Premier League this season. I think mm. everyone's just waiting on him to start kick-firing his season after being the joint top scorer um, in the Premier League last season with Salah, I think it was on 24, 25 goals. So everyone's waiting on him to start kicking into the form that we've really grown to realise is just his typical form. But at the moment, I would say going into it, it is a pretty evenly weighted matchup, to be honest. That's if Son can find his shooting boots, though, because he is such a vital piece whenever they play them that I feel like if he isn't in the game, they won't really get anywhere near them. So it's going to yeah. be really interesting to see because, again, on the opposite end of the scale, you've got Erling Haaland, who could potentially score in his fifth successive game in the Premier League and add to his 12 goals in all competitions so far. Mm. So it's going to be it's going to be a really interesting and exciting matchup this because like I mentioned Spurs just seem to have the setup and Antonio Conte seems to have the setup as well when it comes to these big games where he really does know what it takes to win. So I'm really interested to see how they match up. Yeah, well, Tottenham have won the last two Premier League games between the two sides. They beat them August last year, opening game of the season. Goal to nil at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. And then at the Etihad in February, it was 3-2 to Spurs. 
But since 2010, there have only been two draws in the 12 years in all of the games between the two sides. It's either swung one way or the other. Let's not claim that you know City have never beaten Spurs because that's not the case. Um, they have won in the Premier League as recently as, as 2021, and they won a, a, a League Cup final, didn't they, against Manchester City, which was against Tottenham. Sorry, which was a an important game for them at Wembley. But what do you think, Marley? Do you think that? There's legs in this theory that Antonio Conte might once again get the upper hand on Pep Guardiola. Hmm. Uh, I I think it's a good game. I think if you're looking at uh, the way, but like I said before, I didn't ask Spurs are getting better. I think I think I think they're sort of settling into um, into a top side and and uh, starting to to really get used to each other and stuff and forming a really solid unit. And I think. I think when you've done it against Man City before, um, it's it's getting that first one and, and proving that they're they're not as unbeatable as they look a lot of the time. You know what I mean? Like the smash of Sevilla last night, four 0 and Sevilla, you know, a decent team. And of course they are, but you know, Man City made them look like a, a Sunday League team at, at times, and it's proving uh, Spurs have got that that that. Uh, memory in the bank that they can hurt them and they can play a certain way uh, which will have success if if you've got to be on your game of course you have and you've got to take your chances when they come but if you do that they will they, they may just crack you know what I mean so we'll see what happens at the weekend I suppose but I think with this time with Haaland being in the City team I think Spurs have had some good results but City haven't had a uh, an out and out striker have they so it's it's one of those where the dynamic is slightly different um, and the reason why Spurs have had a bit of success is Kane dropping deep and sort of overloading that midfield a little bit and and uh, relying on the runners from midfield to get past a stretched mm. uh, Man City defence on the counter-attack sort of thing that's where they've had the most success this time it's a little bit different because they're going to be pinned back that little bit more because they are going to be worried about Haaland but We'll have to see what happens at the weekend. I I, I would still back City um, to get it done, but it, it's probably up there with the most entertaining games in the Premier League now that a neutral would, would sit down and, and watch every second of it. It used to be Liverpool-Man City. It still is to an extent, um, but City-Spurs is, is, is right up there now with the uh, the ones you want to watch. Nice question, Mitchell. Appreciate it. Spurs Manchester City this weekend at the Etihad in Manchester. And we will hear what the pros think of that game on this weekend's episode of The Dugout. Two former Premier League professionals will be joining me on that show. And that will be one of the games that we preview ahead of this weekend's top flight action. Appreciate everyone's questions. Thanks, Liam. Thanks, Mitchell, for those questions. As I say, don't forget you can get yours in for next week's AQA. If there's anything you want discussed on the podcast, no matter how big or small, no matter how funny or serious then get in touch it's at fsd pod on twitter at sports social official on instagram and if you just search for sports social in facebook you'll be able to send us a message on there that is it from myself joel and marley we'll catch you a little bit later on on shots but for now see you later football social daily subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode